and dear brethren and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have come to a point in our class where we can now leave the circumstances surrounding the birth of the Lord and we can actually commence the consideration of his life. Up to this point of time, we have only considered those circumstances which surrounded the begettal of the Lord, the uh, um, words of Zechariah and Elizabeth and so forth, and the circumstances surrounding his birth. Up to this point of time, right through our studies, the Lord has either been unborn or has been a helpless, unconscious babe. So from this point on, we start looking at the actual life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Tonight we will listen to the first first recorded words that came out of his mouth. We will try and look at the growth and the development of this young child as he grew up and developed through childhood and through youth to the perfect man. Well perhaps we're not told very much about his childhood and youth. In fact the words that we have read this evening a mere 12 verses of scripture appear to be all that we have concerning his childhood and youth. But nevertheless we do find that the word of God gives us enough hints for us to be able to construct some picture in our minds of the early years of the Lord Jesus Christ. It gives us a little picture into his mind as we can see his thoughts developing and maturing and as we see that child grow and develop into a perfect man. The Lord Jesus Christ possibly was three years old. It's shot in the dark. He may have been younger, he may have been a little older. But possibly in the vicinity of three years old when he arrived at Nazareth. He lived at Nazareth until the age of 30. So the greater part of his life was lived at Nazareth and those 12 verses that we have read span most of the Lord's life. His ministry lasted some three and a half years but he lived for some 27 years in the town of Nazareth and it was there in Nazareth that he spent his childhood and grew to maturity. I believe there's a couple of passages in the book of Psalms which are relevant to the childhood and youth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Psalm 22, which we have put upon the top of the sheet that was given out, in verses 9 and 10, here in this psalm we are reading words which the Lord Jesus Christ uttered when he was hanging upon the cross, when his life was near its end. It is almost spent. In those last few agonising hours, it was this 22nd psalm that had its fulfilment. And the words here of this psalm have come from the mouth of the Lord as he hangs upon the cross. But in verses 9 and 10 we read, But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my ale from my mother's belly. And those words from Psalm 22 show us quite plainly that 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 
very close intimate relationship that we see existing in the Lord Jesus Christ through the three and a half years of his ministry was a relationship that started in the earliest conscious hours at mo- uh, times of his life. It was a relationship that was developed, that started at his birth and was consistently developed and fostered throughout his childhood and youth. And the Lord goes right back here to the time of his birth. And in verse 9 he says, Thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. And in that verse it shows us that the Lord Jesus Christ was very conscious of the circumstances of his birth. He knew that he was begotten by the power of the Holy Spirit. He was conscious of the providential care that was afforded him when he was a young, helpless babe. And as he cast his mind back to those earliest times, he says, but thou art he that took me out of the womb. He recognised his divine origin and that it was divine providence that had protected him from the rage of Herod and so forth things that were obviously told to him at a later time. He wouldn't have been conscious of them at the time. But they would have been told to him, most certainly by his mother and by Joseph, as that child grew. And at a very early age, I believe, he comprehended the significance of those things. He realised that Yahweh was his father, and Yahweh had providentially cared for him in those early years of his life. Where in that psalm we read, Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. The word hope is a word that most other translators render as trust. In actual fact, it's a word which means to flee for refuge. It is, you see, thou made me trust, or thou made me flee for refuge when I was upon my mother's breast right from the very earliest times of his life, the Lord Jesus Christ was conscious of the fact that Yahweh in heaven was his trust, was his refuge. And he sought refuge and and safety in his heavenly Father. Now in the 71st Psalm, we find very similar words. Again, I believe, applicable to the Lord Jesus Christ. In Psalm 71, Verses 5 and 6. The psalmist says, For thou art my hope, O Adonai Yahweh, thou art my trust from my youth. By thee have I been holding up from the womb. Thou art he who took me out of my mother's mouth. My praise shall be continually of thee. And again we see here, the psalmist, or in spirit, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, speaking of the way that God had been his trust from his youth. And it was in the days of his youth and in his childhood, he learnt that his Father in heaven was a refuge, one in whom he could put trust and confidence. Verse 6 says, By thee have I been holden up, from the womb. Holding up. And that word holding up means to prop up 
or to lean upon or to take hold of you know it's used in the same word is used in the 26th chapter of, of Isaiah where in that uh, words of that prophet we read in Isaiah 26 and verse 3 thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed or propped up on thee because he trusteth in thee but in the Lord Jesus Christ in this 71st Psalm he's saying by thee have I been propped up I've been held up from the womb right through his childhood and his youth he recognised the need he had of his God he trusted in his God he propped himself up in the, on his God he says thou art he that took me out of my mother's vows again recognising the divine origin that he had and so turning back to Psalm 22 we see that these Psalms show us the disposition that was in the Lord Jesus Christ through his childhood and his youth and those things growing to maturity and completion in manhood in Psalm 22 and verse 10 we read I was cast upon thee from the womb I was cast upon thee and the word means to throw or to cast he was thrown upon Yahweh from the womb now when we stop and think about those words brethren and sisters it indicates to us I believe that through his childhood the Lord Jesus Christ didn't have everything heaped upon him he wasn't fed with a silver spoon I believe it indicates that he probably grew up in a very poor family sometimes they wouldn't have known where the next meal was coming from you see it's circumstances like that that throw a person upon Yahweh and they've got no confidence in themselves and they see that there's nothing that they can do in a situation and they're thrown upon Yahweh and caused to trust upon Yahweh and I believe it's that verse that statement I was cast upon thee from the womb indicates that right through his childhood and youth the Lord Jesus Christ learnt to put his trust and his confidence in Yahweh he didn't have everything easy he didn't have everything piled upon him because when a person got everything they want when a person's surrounded with every comfort the tendency is to trust in themselves the tendency is to become puffed up with pride those circumstances don't throw a person upon Yahweh but the Lord Jesus Christ here in this psalm says how he was thrown upon Yahweh from the womb this psalm tells us how he trusted in God right through his childhood and his youth up to manhood and trusted something that's learnt by experience it's not just a thing that's taught academically it might be taught academically in the first place but it's something that's learnt by experience that is the words of David when he goes out to meet Goliath he says Yahweh delivered me out of the mouth of the lion and out of the bear David had learnt by experience that Yahweh would look after him and he went out and met Goliath in perfect confidence based upon his knowledge of the truth and his experiences of life and I believe such it was with the Lord Jesus Christ he learned at a very early age that Yahweh is a refuge he learnt to prop himself up upon Yahweh he learnt to trust in his God 
If you notice the last words of verse 10, Thou art my aim. Thou art my strength from my mother's belly. Now right through childhood and youth, he was a most remarkable child. He never t- trusted in his own strength. God was his strength right through his life. And I believe it shows us something of the very humble disposition of this child. Something different perhaps to what we would imagine. He was the son of God. He was the one who was going to be heir of the world. If anyone was going to trust in his own strength and in, in the power of his own arm, surely it would be him. But it wasn't. He was of a very humble disposition, recognising his dependence upon his Father in heaven and, and, and um, making God his strength from the very earliest times of his life. I believe those psalms do show us something of the characteristics and the disposition of the Lord Jesus Christ as he grew up in that town of Nazareth and developed into the perfect man. So returning then to Luke chapter 2 and at verse 40 we read And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit (coughs) filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. And the word child there, it's the word paid on. And it means a little child or a young child. I believe this verse is referring to the Lord's life from the age of the time when he arrived at Nazareth, perhaps three years old, through to the time that he was twelve. He was a young child. He was just a little child in those years. From his his, uh, spanning the years up to 12 years of age. When we get down to verse 43, for instance, and we read, uh, and when they had fulfilled the days, as they they returned, the child Jesus, it's a different word used there, the word payeth. It refers to an older child. The Lord was a youth at that time. But here in verse 40, he's just a young child. In young, tender years. And we read in that verse that he grew and he waxed strong in spirit and he was filled with wisdom. He grew and he waxed strong. Brother Robert Roberts, in commenting upon that statement in Nazareth Revisited on page 76, we've quoted on the sheet there, says, The child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom. And the grace of God was upon him. This shows us a thriving, healthy child, and a child of well-marked character from the first. Quiet, probably, and grave, but of a clear, decided, and original mind. He said it must have been so in the childhood of a man like Jesus. It is said the child is the father of the man. This is a universal truth, even in cases that may seem to be exceptional. The man is but the expansion and development of the germ existing in childhood. The pattern of the man Christ Jesus was latent in the child born of Mary. And so Brother Roberts 
Looking at that verse, the child grew and went strong, comments that indicate that the Lord in those early years of his life was a thriving, healthy child. When it says he grew and went, uh, he grew and went strong, actually some, some authorities claim that the words in spirit shouldn't be there. It doesn't really matter whether they're there or whether they're not. It doesn't make any difference to the meaning of the verse. But the child grew and went strong in spirit. It shows us a child growing, physically growing. A strong, healthy, thriving child, as, 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 as Brother Robert Roberts saw it. But he sees it also as a child of well-marked character. Because that child, right from very early age, it says, waxed strong in spirit and was filled with wisdom. We see that here in this child, physical growth was coupled with mental and moral development. That's what's set forth in verse 40. A young child growing physically, but that physical growth and development being coupled with mental and moral growth and development. You see, it says that he was filled with wisdom. We went strong in spirit, sir. If we omit the words in spirit, well, the wax strong could apply to his physical growth and development. But if we retain the words in spirit, it, it refers to the development of his mind. So here was a child that was growing physically and developing mentally. And he was filled with wisdom. Now the tense of that statement there shows that the process of filling was a continuous process. He was being filled with wisdom. It was a continuing process that kept pace with bodily development. The word wisdom is the word Sophia. It shows that the Lord Jesus Christ was growing in knowledge and understanding, but also in the application of that knowledge. That's why we say there was physical mental and moral development taking place in that young child. He was growing physically, he was growing in the knowledge of the, uh, uh, of the truth and he was putting it into practice in his life. That's what that verse tells us. So right in those tender ages, of eight, uh, years of childhood, the Lord Jesus Christ was making remarkable progress. Now when we go back to Isaiah chapter 11, the prophet Isaiah, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, Isaiah chapter 11, verse, uh, verse 2 says, And the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of Yahweh. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, and so on and so forth. Whilst that prophecy is of course speaking <coughs> of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ when he's a mature man, nevertheless I believe that statement that says, and it shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of Yahweh, applied from the days of his early childhood. I believe he was of quick understanding in the fear of Yahweh right from a child. And I believe verse 40 here indicates that. But it says how the child grew and was filled with wisdom. 
You see, our children today or learn, the first lesson that they learn, of course, is that God made everything. They learn to say it off by heart. You ask them who made the birds and the trees and the flowers and they can tell us. God made them. But you know, in our case, it's very often not until we're well into adult life before the full implication of that hits home to us. So all the full impact of that starts to hit home. A child can, can, can repeat it like a parrot. But very often we're well into adult life before the full impact of that hits home. I don't believe that was so with the Lord. I believe as a very young child he would have learned. Not only that God made everything, but that, but that he himself was a, a divine origin, God being his father. And I believe the full implications of that would have hit home. He would have recognised that he belonged to God, that he owed his life to God, and so on and so forth. And this was what it is why that child would grow and develop and make such outstanding progress and be filled with wisdom even at such a tender age. You see, it adds in that verse, and the grace of God was upon him. You see, he pleased his father. At the age of 30, the voice from heaven said, This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. The grace of God was upon him because the grace of God was extended to him in the first place, in the things that he had given him, in the, in the word of truth and so forth. But here was a child that responded in a pleasing and acceptable way to God so that that grace remained upon him. You know, God gives grace upon certain principles. It says in Proverbs 3 and verse 34 (coughs) that he giveth grace unto the humble. God gives grace upon certain circumstances. It says in other parts of the book of Proverbs that, that uh, if a person grows in, in knowledge and understanding, God gives more grace, and so on and so forth. And it indicates that in that young child there were found the conditions upon which Yahweh could extend his grace and multiply his grace toward that child because he was rightly responding to the blessings that his father had given under him. You see, he fully comprehended the significance of being the son of God and being part of God's creation. A creation that God had made for his own pleasure and for his own glory. And he desired to give pleasure and glory to his father at all times, even from the earliest times of his life. And so the child grew and went strong in spirit, being filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was resting upon him. Now it's interesting perhaps to try and create a little bit of a picture of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ through those twelve, first twelve years of his life. We're told in that verse of his, his physical, uh, spiritual and moral development. But what are the surrounding circumstances of his life at that time? What sort of a house did the Lord Jesus Christ live in? Well, we don't really know. The scriptures don't tell us. But we do have the writings of historians and so forth so try to paint a picture for us of the type of houses that people lived in in those days. My quote now from a book called The Story of the Bible World on page 136. The writer asks the question, what were houses like in Nazareth? 
He says, most of them had but a single roof. There were four limestone walls with perhaps only one small window. Uh, the roof was, <coughs> they were covered over by a flat roof made of poles or rafters strewn with a thick coating of branches and then straw and weeds and topped off with some eight inches of clay. This clay had to be kept tamped and rolled. Ancient roof rollers are still frequently discovered. The floor was usually given over to the animals while the family's living quarters were on a raised platform across the rear which was reached by a flight of very narrow stone steps. There in the poorer homes a mat was spread on the floor and on it the family ate the evening meal. There too, as the light began to fail, other reed pallets were laid out side by side so that coverings could be shared for the night's sleep. In all probability, such were the humble circumstances of life that the Lord experienced. Now the Lord Jesus Christ was the eldest son in a family of at least seven children. We know that he had at least four, uh, he had four brothers and at least two sisters. Mark chapter 6 and verse 3 tells us so. But there in such a humble house, under humble circumstances, sharing such a house with four brothers and two sisters, there the Lord Jesus Christ grew up through childhood, through youth, to manhood. Under humble circumstances such as that, the Lord developed a perfect life. You know, and when we look at our circumstances today, and the things we expect to have, and the things we say we can't do because we haven't got this, that and the other, we need, brethren and sisters, to deeply think about those early years of the Lord Jesus Christ and those circumstances that prevailed upon him to create in him that disposition that, that, that was so pleasing to his father. And through those childhood years, how the Lord Jesus Christ was constantly thrown upon his father for support and for strength, and how he drew guidance and comfort from the word of his father. You know, it is probable that the Lord Jesus Christ went to school. Edda Schein, in his uh, book, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, and also in his book, The Sketches of Jewish Life in the Days of Christ, points out that compulsory education was the order of the day in that time. Schools were introduced into Israel many years before the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by this time it shines says that there would have been a school in every town and it was compulsory for the children to attend that school. Schools of course then were very different to what they are today. But at six years of age a child had to attend school. The school was associated with the synagogue. It would be the, the rabbi or the uh, uh, teachers at the synagogue that would teach the children. The ideals of the, uh, of the school were of the very highest standard, quite different to what they are today. And from six years old to ten years old, the students were taught exclusively from the Bible. And the Lord Jesus Christ, in all probability, at six years of age, 
Each day had to make his way down to the local synagogue. And there he would sit upon the ground, uh, uh, around the feet of the, of, the, of the teacher, as the teacher would teach the children out of the Bible. They'd learned to probably to read and write and so on and so forth, but it would all be out of the Bible. Do you know, brethren and sisters, do you know where their education started? You'd probably say, well, of course, at the book of Genesis. But that's wrong. The Jewish child's education started with the book of Leviticus. We can imagine the Lord Jesus Christ, a little child of six, sitting at the feet of the rabbi, being taught out of the book of Leviticus the principles of the sacrifice, the principles of the burnt offering, peace offering, meal offering, sin and trespass offering. And what sort of a student was he? You know, the Lord Jesus Christ learnt those lessons and fulfilled them. That's what sort of a student he was. And so at the age of six he probably attended school and learnt, was taught out of the Bible, taught lessons uh, concerning himself. You know, we look at other circumstances that surrounded the life of the Lord in these early years. You know, everything wasn't peaceful and tranquil in, in Israel at those times. When the Lord Jesus Christ was about ten years of age, Archelaus, who was reigning down in the south in Jerusalem, was removed from his throne by the Romans and a, a Roman governor was placed in Jerusalem. There was probably political turbulence around that time. Archelaus was, was removed because of his, his, his wicked and oppressive rule at that, over that city. But even up in the north, right close to where the Lord Jesus Christ was living, there were very troublous and turbulent times. Sometime between the age of 10 and 12, a great nationalist revolt rose up under one called Judas the Galilean. He was a leader of the Zealots. Their cry was, no king but God. Very worthy cry if they'd lived in accordance with it. But they raised up a revolt against the Romans and they made the city of Sephoris the centre, the headquarters of the rebellion. They actually stormed a, uh, a Roman camp, I think, at Tiberius and captured all the weapons of war. And then they made Sephoris in Galilee just a very few miles away from Nazareth. Very few miles away from Nazareth. I, am t- I have been led to believe that the ruins of Sephoris can still be seen today from the hills surrounding Nazareth. So close it was to Nazareth that you can stand on the hills around Nazareth and look down upon the ruins of Sephoris. And this rebellion was raised up in the city of Sephoris and the Roman legions were brought down, they attacked that city, they destroyed it, they burned it with fire, they herded the boys, girls, men, women together, they carted them over hills away to the coast on the ships and sold them to the slave markets of the world. And 2,000 of the rebels were crucified. They were crucified on the, uh, in the outlying areas of Sephoris. And the writers say that miles north and south, the roads to Sephoris were, 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 were lined by uh, estates and the rebels being crucified thereon. Possible that the Lord Jesus Christ from the city of Nazareth watched the smoke of that city ascend up to heaven. And he possibly saw people 
writhing and dying upon those stakes. If he didn't see it, he would have certainly heard the news of it in the city of Nazareth, which was only a very short distance away. I wonder what impression things like this had upon that young, growing, developing boy. Impressions probably that kept what lasted with him right through his life. And at a later time he could warn his disciples of the horrors of AD 70 when the Romans would come down and destroy the city of Jerusalem. And when the cross loomed before himself, how his mind would have probably gone back and he would have remembered the time when those rebels were crucified outside that city. And how they hung there in agony upon those stakes just for a short while and then it was all over and the peace of death would sweep over And the Lord Jesus Christ would set his eye upon the joy that was set before him and he would endure those sufferings that lay before him. These were some of the circumstances that surrounded the life and the development of the Lord Jesus Christ in those first 12 years of his life. And amid those circumstances the child grew and waxed strong in spirit and he was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. Now in verse 41 we read, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. That shows us something about his parents. His parents were very diligent in the observance of of the Feast of Passover. Every year they would go up to Jerusalem to the Feast of Passover. And it shows us that Joseph and Mary were God-fearing people. And they were the, the uh, <coughs> parents of the Lord, Je- Lord Jesus Christ. He grew up under their, under their care. And undoubtedly under their care he would have been given uh, a lot of good education and guidance in the things of Yahweh's truth. And every year they would go up to Jerusalem to keep the feast of Passover. It is probable, of course, that the Lord Jesus Christ went with them every year. There's nothing to say that he didn't. There's nothing to say that he did either. But we are told that, 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 um, that his parents went up every year. The implication is that the Lord Jesus Christ would have gone up with them every year. But you see, in verse 42 we read, and when he was 12 years old they went up to Jerusalem. Now you see, that is assuming that the Lord went up every year anyway. When he went up at 12 years old, it would have been very different to any other time that he had ever gone up. Because you see, in a, in a boy in his 13th year, that is, after he turned 12, his 13th year was the year between his 12th and his 13th birthday. And in his 13th year, he was considered as a son of the commandment. In other words, he was counted as responsible to the things of the law. And in, from that year onward, he would actually keep the feast himself. He would actually partake in that Passover feast himself. So see, every other year that they'd gone up, if he went up, he would just go to Jerusalem, but he would take no personal active part in the Passover. But when he turned 12 years of age, he would go up to Jerusalem and he would keep that feast himself. Imagine what an experience this would have been in the Lord's life. 
as the Lord for the first time came involved in that Passover feast. He became involved in something which in actual fact was enacting his own sacrifice that he was to make in later years of his life. You know, as they travelled up to to Jerusalem upon that particular time, I believe that Joseph and Mary would have fulfilled the obligations of the law as set forth in Exodus chapter 13. Exodus chapter 13 verses 14 to 16 It shall be when thy son asketh thee in time to come saying what is this? That thou shalt say unto him by strength of hand Yahweh brought us out from Egypt from the house of bondage and it came to pass when Pharaoh would hardly let us go that the Lord slew all the firstborn in the land of Egypt both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of thee. Therefore I sacrifice to Yahweh all that openeth the mattress being male, but all the firstborn of my children I redeem. For it is a token, for it shall be a token upon thine hand, and frontless between thine eyes. For by strength of hand Yahweh brought us forth out of the land of Egypt. Now actually those words are, uh, are referring to the, to the offering of the the firstborn of the animals but we find that the same words apply to the Passover so that when they kept the Passover and their children were to ask them concerning the the Passover they were to relate to them the things that Yahweh had done in slaying the firstborn of Egypt in redeeming that people out of Egypt as a people for himself and as that company travelled up to um, up to Jerusalem to keep the feast of Passover, that would have been the subject of conversation as they travelled up. And Joseph would have been impressing upon the Lord Jesus Christ as he went up to keep that feast of Passover for the first time. He would have been impressing upon him the reasons why that was being done and the spiritual lessons concerning the offering of that Passover land. I wonder what thoughts and what feelings the Lord Jesus Christ had as he meditated upon those things. And as then getting to that city, he actually went through the ritual of, of offering that Passover and partaking of the Passover feast. Journey up to Jerusalem and they keep the feast of the Passover. We read in verse 43 that when they had fulfilled the days, and we remember from the book of Exodus that the Passover feast lasted for eight days. There was the keeping of the Passover, there was the seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, then there was the offering of the first fruits at the end of that, and then the feast was all over. In all probability, uh, the company remained for the period of time that the feast lasted. It is said that, 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 that many people left Jerusalem uh, sooner than that. They didn't wait for the completion of the, the whole cycle of the feast. But probably they waited until the days were fulfilled, as it says there. And the company set out to return to Nazareth. It says there, as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in the temple. We notice he is referred to as the child Jesus, but as we noted before, that word is the word pious. It refers 
<laughs> to an older child than the previous word did. The Lord is growing and developing now. And as the company is gathered together and is moving off upon the journey toward Nazareth, we find that the Lord Jesus Christ is so completely absorbed in what, was, what had taken place in that city. He was so filled with enthusiasm to be engaged in his father's work. We find that he tarried behind, the company moved off and he was still there, totally absorbed in the things of, of God, in the things relating to the temple. We see here a child who's, who's got such a thirst for the things of God that he, he tarries behind here and he, he spends his time in the temple discussing and listening and asking questions with the doctors of the law. We see here a young lad of 12 years old that's filled with enthusiasm to become involved in his father's work. He's anxious to get involved in his father's work and get on with the things that he's been sent here to do. We see that characteristic here manifested in this child of 12 years of age. And so the Lord Jesus Christ tarries behind and the party moves off travelling up to Nazareth without him. And Joseph and Mary are travelling along and they don't even know that Jesus is not in the company. Now that reveals to us certain things. It indicates to us, firstly, that Joseph and Mary had complete trust in their their son, in their boy. They had absolute trust in him so they could go a day's journey thinking he's in the company but knowing perfectly well that he would be profitably engaging his time in that company. So they go a day's journey and they're not even aware of the fact that Jesus isn't there. They take it for granted that he's in that company but he's somewhere among the people discussing the word of God with them. That I believe would be the mind of Joseph and Mary at this time. Of course, as the day's journey gets to its end, and they're going to set up camp for the night, we find that they come to look for the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 44 tells us that they had, they had supposed him to have been with the company. And when they'd gone a day's journey and they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintance, and when they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem seeking him. So they get to the end of the day's journey and they come and they find that the Lord's not there. Imagine their feelings now. They've been entrusted with the care of the Son of God. They've had God's own Son put into their care. They've gone a day's journey and they've lost him. We can imagine their feelings. And I believe the implication of verse 45 is that they turn back again straight away back to Jerusalem probably travelled all night to get back to Jerusalem. We don't know. It just says they turned back again to Jerusalem seeking him. But we can imagine it would have been a time of great urgency for them. And, 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 and more than likely they'd have got back to Jerusalem as quickly as they could seeking him. He says, and it came to pass that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. After three days, well they'd gone one day's journey out, but they journeyed back again 
that might have taken a day going back if they travelled back the next day. If they travelled back at night, of course, they'd have got there sooner. But then there was a, a day, um, there was a day's journey out, was one day. There was a journey back. And then there was a day seeking him in Jerusalem until finally they found him in the temple. And so here the son that they had complete trust in is now lost. And they seek him. They spend three days and they still haven't found him. Imagine the feelings of Joseph and Mary after three days and they still can't find him. Well, up to the, up to the third day they still hadn't found him. But then they do find him. And where do they find him? We're told there in verse 45, uh, rather verse um, 46, that after three days they found him in the temple sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. Here was the Lord sitting there, listening to the expositions of the doctors and seeking to find out more. He was listening and asking questions. Now it indicates to us, brothers and sisters, that that early age of 12, the spirit described in Psalm 42, was manifested in him. In the 42nd Psalm and verses, <coughs> verses 1 and 2. As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living ale. When shall I come and appear before for God? My tears have been my meat day and night by the continually saying to me, where is thy God? And we see that thirst for God manifested in the Lord Jesus Christ at the age of, age of 12. He, he couldn't learn enough. He couldn't get enough. And there he is in the temple, totally and completely absorbed in the things, in the teaching of, of, of the doctors of the Lord. Thirsting after the knowledge of his Father in heaven. And we read in verse 47 that all that heard him were, were astonished at his understanding and his answers. And so here was a young boy of 12 who manifested an amazing disposition and an astonishing understanding and knowledge of the word of God. We can see, brethren and sisters, that in those early years when he was growing and being filled with wisdom and waxing strong in spirit, we can see that that young mind was soaking up the word of God, was reaching out that he might learn more of his father. And as that mind grew and developed, so that tremendous thirst for the things of God was developed in him. So at the age of 12 we find him here so completely immersed in, in the, uh, the things, of, things of his father, that he's oblivious almost, that the, the company's gone three, got, been, been gone three days before. And there he is, still tarrying behind in the city of Jerusalem. And so Mary and Joseph find him. And we read in verse 48, And when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said unto him, Son, why hast thou dealt with us? Why hast thou thus dealt with us? 
Behold thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. The word sorrowing there means to feel pain, to suffer. That's what the word means. They've been feeling pain over the loss of the Lord Jesus Christ and we can well imagine and well appreciate that that would be so. This wasn't only Mary's son, but it was God's son who had been entrusted to their care and they'd lost him and they'd been seeking diligently for him for three days and now they find him. But notice the words of Mary, Behold, thy father and I have sought thee. Thy father and I have sought thee. Obviously she was referring to Joseph who wasn't really his father at all. But possibly because of the fact that they were in the presence of other people there in the courts of the temple. Possibly that was the reason she used that phrase. We don't know why. But she said, Thy father and I have sought thee thoroughly. But notice the reply of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 49 we read, And he said unto them, How is it that ye sought me? Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? Those words, it is suggested, would be better rendered that I must be in my father's house. In other words, he's saying to them, look, how is it that you sought me? Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? Why hadn't they gone straight to the temple? It was the obvious place to look because that was his father's house. So we notice, even at the age of 12 here, the Lord Jesus Christ is conscious of the fact that he is the Son of God. He recognised God as his father. Mary says, your father has sought you sorrowing. But he says, but look, I've been in my father's house all the time. And he says, don't you know that I must be in my father's house? And so here the Lord Jesus Christ is showing that consciousness and knowledge that he is God's son and uh, and we see him anxious and zealous and enthusiastic to become involved in his father's work and to be in his father's house. But we see, of course, that in verse 15 that they understood not the saying which he spake unto them. They didn't really comprehend at that time just what the Lord Jesus Christ meant by that answer. Wished ye not that I must be in my Father's house. But nevertheless in verse 51, at the end of verse 51, we read, But his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. She remembered them. She stored them away in her mind. She was trying to fit them all together. And we see that so characteristic of Mary. In verse 19 of this same chapter we read, but Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And so although she didn't understand the significance of what the Lord had said at that time, nevertheless, she stored it away in her mind and she thought upon it and pondered upon it. And probably it was only in later years of her life that she really understood what the Lord Jesus Christ was trying to tell her at that particular time. And so they found the Lord Jesus Christ. They found him in the temple, so absorbed 
in the uh, conversations with the doctors and the learned people of Jerusalem in the principles of Yahweh's word. And we read in verse 51, <coughs> having now found him, we read, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. He came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. You know, those few words span the next 18 years in the Lord's life. He was subject unto his parents. You know, brethren and sisters, when we go through the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, nowhere, nowhere do we find coming out of the mouth of the Lord the words, I want, I am going to do this, I'd like to have that, I'm going to get this, I'm going to do that. We find those words recorded nowhere because I don't believe he ever spoke. We read of the Lord Jesus Christ as he hung up, uh, as he faced the last final trial of his life saying, not my will but thine be done. We find him saying, I do always those things that please my Father. And you know, that sort of submission, that submissive spirit was learnt. It was, it was learnt and it was fostered and it was developed in that humble little house at Nazareth. And so the Lord Jesus Christ was subject to his earthly parents and he was subject to his heavenly Father. He was the perfect man. Now concerning the time of his subjection to his parents at Nazareth, Brother Robert Roberts in Nazareth Revisited on page 81 writes these words. He learns his father's trade while subject to his parents in Nazareth. We all know this, but how feebly the fact impresses us, except when we happen to get a glimpse of it in its right connection. It has been seen from the point of view of Christ's exaltation. An unexciting, lowly life of private manual labour was chosen by God as the right school for the training of his beloved son for the heirship of all things. How comforting this must be to Christ's lowly brethren of the poor of all ages who have to earn their bread by the labour of horny hands. Rightly viewed, it will reconcile them to their present lot as the best adapted to develop true human character at its best when other other conditions are favourable and as the best preparation for exaltation to which all men are invited who accept his son. To think of the coming king of all the earth having been a working man. What glorious thoughts it suggests. Working men are looked down upon by the children of plenty. And lo, a working man is destined to divest them of their wealth and to send them away empty. The life of a working man means the full development of manhood strength, a strong frame, a firm and kindly muscular hand, a simple and independent character combined with humility of deportment. If to these we add the clearness of a divine intellect, the fire of a godly zeal and the tenderness of true kindness and compassion, 
we get an approximation to the carpenter of Nazareth in whom God was working out the archetype to which his family will be conformed. And so as Brother Roberts points out, it was in this 18 years that the Lord Jesus Christ learnt his father's trust. Um, authorities tell us that at the age of 12 it was at the age of 12 that a, um, a, a, a child started to learn a trade and the Lord Jesus Christ learnt the trade of a carpenter Matthew, uh, Mark chapter 6 and verse 3 tells us that, um, uh, that, that he was a carpenter and so he learnt the trade of a carpenter and as Brother Roberts points out, it's really quite an astounding thing really when we think that the God of heaven was preparing his son to be the king of all the earth and he chose to make him a carpenter. And seeing that as the <coughs> best way of developing him and preparing him for that future work. Now a carpenter was quite hard work in ancient times They didn't have all the machines and gadgets that carpenters have today. They didn't have electric saws and electric drills and electric everything else. One writer tells us that the work of a carpenter involved the cutting of the timber out of the forest. That if the carpenter got a particular job to do, he'd have to go out and select a tree and cut it down and prepare the wood from the tree. And out of that wood, make the object that he he had to make. So if that is so we can see that the Lord would have had to work very hard in those years. It would not have been an easy trade to learn. It would have been hard work. But you see, it was work that would have brought him into dealings with people of all walks of life. You see, the rich tax gatherers would have probably been seeking things to be made to glorify their houses. The humble farm worker on the hills would have come to him wanting agricultural implements to be made. And so he'd have been dealing with people of all walks of life. And in those years he'd have come to understand human nature. He'd have understood it, of course, from his knowledge of the word, but he'd now see it in practical working. He'd have come to have to deal with people of all different types. You know, he'd also have had to learn the importance of selecting the right materials for the right job. You wouldn't select the the, the wrong sort of wood for a particular job. Whatever it was he was making would call for for, for certain degrees of strength and so forth. He would have to select wood that could stand up to the strains and stresses. He'd have learnt the use of tools. He would learn that you don't use a saw as a hammer and so on and so forth. But every tool has its right and proper use. And lessons that he would have put into practice at later times and he selected his servants and gave them particular aspects of work to do. He would know that you, 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 you use the right tool for a certain sort of job. You've got to have the right materials to do certain sort of things. And the Lord would have learned all these lessons. Uh, and so we can see how this aspect of work would have developed the Lord's character even further. You know, at this time and as Robert Roberts uh, indicates it's somewhere upon that sheet one of the quotations we haven't read yet he indicates that probably the implication of scripture is that Joseph probably died 
sometime in this 18 years because from this incident here in Luke chapter 2 Joseph disappears from the scene the Lord Jesus Christ was the eldest son of quite a large family during this 18 silent years as it were of the Lord's life he probably had to assume a lot of the responsibility of the family it was possibly he who trained his younger brothers in their trade it was he who would, who would have to look to the education of the younger members of that family. It is he who would have had to provide the needs, perhaps, of, of his mother and his brethren. And he'd have, these responsibilities would have been laid upon him at this time. And so the Lord Jesus the Christ would have learnt all the aspects of life, the trials and the difficulties and the problems of life. In that 18 years he would have learnt all those things as he learnt the trade of a carpenter, as possibly the responsibilities of the family became laid upon his shoulders, all things developing him and fitting him for work in later life. You know, verse 52 describes to us the continual growth and development of the Lord Jesus Christ. We read, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and man. So throughout that time, we're told that Jesus increased in wisdom. The word increased, there is a word, a prokopto, a word which we're told means literally to cut forward. It's a word that applied... (coughs) to a person blazing a trail as it was, cutting a path through a forest, cutting his way forward. Now it's a word which doesn't show just a, a, a passive sort of a growth. For a person cutting a path through a forest is involved in personal, active, energetic work. And we're told here that Jesus cut his way forward as it were, in wisdom and in stature. He cut his way forward in wisdom. Now the Apostle Paul uses the very same word, the same word but in a slightly different tense in the first of Timothy, in chapter 4. First of Timothy, chapter 4. <coughs> <coughs> Paul is exhorting the young man Timothy. He says in verse 12, let no man despise thy youth. But be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Neglect not the gift which is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy, with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them that thy profiting may appear to all. And that word profiting is the same word translated increase in Luke chapter 2 and verse 52. And Paul here is laying down certain principles that Timothy must acknowledge and put into practice in his life if he's going to (coughs) cut his way forward in a way that will appear to all. The Lord, we're told, 
did cut his way forward in wisdom. Why did he? Because he followed the principles that Paul is setting out here to Timothy. He was an example. He, he, he set himself up to be an example of the believers in word, conversation, charity, spirit, faith, purity. He gave attendance to reading, exhortation, doctrine. He meditated upon these things and gave himself wholly to them. You see, the picture of a pioneer cutting a path through the forest, cutting down every obstacle in his way. The Lord Jesus Christ let nothing stand in his way in giving attendance to those things that Paul exhorts in those verses. He did a hard day's work. He would come home tired. But that to him, that was no excuse for, giving, for neglecting the reading of the word. Neglecting attention to exhortation and teaching. That was no excuse for not setting a good example in all things. And so the Lord Jesus Christ in those 18 years of his life, I believe we're shown that, that was the, those were the overriding characteristics of his life at that time. He increased in wisdom and stature. Notice the word margin gives an alternate rendering for that word stature. It describes it as age. Actually, the word is used in that way. It's used in John chapter 9 where the parents of the blind man said, he is of age, ask him. And if he's old enough to be responsible to answer for himself, ask him. It's used in Hebrews 11 and verse 11, speaking of Sarah, conceiving seed when she was past age. There is a word which means age. Now is this verse just telling us that the Lord Jesus Christ got 12 months older every year? I don't believe it is. I believe that what that verse is telling us is that he was, he was increasing in maturity. The word according to Bullinger means adultness. Maturity of life, mind, age or person. He was increasing in maturity of mind. I believe that's what that verse is telling us. And through that 18 years in Nazareth, through those critical, youthful years, those crucial years in a person's life, the Lord Jesus Christ was giving himself wholly to attendance to reading, exhortation, so on and so forth. And he was not only growing in knowledge and in wisdom, but he was growing in maturity of mind. So that when the age of 30, he manifested the word of God to the full. That was the development of the Lord Jesus Christ through those 18 years of his life. You know, young people today need to look at the Lord Jesus Christ and need to deeply think about those things. You see, are our young people today forging ahead in wisdom and in maturity of mind? Are they giving themselves wholly to the, to the things of God? to the study of God's word and the service of God, to supporting the things of God? Or are their minds like the world outside, involved in the idols of this age, involved with their motor cars, their gearboxes, their mag wheels and so on and so forth? Indeed, brethren and sisters, very soon, we're all going to stand in the presence of the perfect man. We're going to be stand alongside this youth who made such outstanding progress in the things of God because he gave himself 
wholly to them. Now just a couple of brief points before we finish. From the pen of Brother Robert Roberts. <coughs> Down the bottom of the third side of that sheet. Brother Roberts makes a few further observations of the Lord's life during these 18 years. He says, the last reliable clue that we have to his life in Nazareth is contained in a single but significant expression. We are informed that after his baptism he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. From this we gather that he was a regular attendant at the synagogue and took part in the exercises conducted there, especially that one exercise of which his whole life was a glorification, the reading of the scriptures of Moses and the prophets. It was his custom to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, working the six days with his father, though there is a tradition that his father died while he was young, and that the business and family affairs had to be carried on by him. He rested the seventh day according to the commandments, not doing thine own way, nor finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words, but calling the Sabbath a delight, holy of the Lord and honourable. We are not to infer from this that Jesus paid no attention to the words of God on the other days of the week. On the contrary, he was obedient in all things and therefore carried out the other instruction of Moses to Israel to treasure the words of God in their hearts talking of them when thou sittest in thine house and when thou walkest by the way and when thou liest down and when thou risest up binding them as a sign upon thine hand and as frontlets between thine eyes writing them upon the posts of thine house and upon thy gates. Jesus would have the fear of God before his eyes all the day long. He would therefore in everything give thanks. At his daily meals God would thus be recognised as well as when he came to feed a multitude and to to institute the breaking of bread. Could we have followed him in his business transactions? We should have found them conducted with gravity and sincerity and sound speech that cannot be condemned. And in his social intercourse we should have found no jesting and foolish talking which are not convenient. We should in everything have found him an example. He is the ideal to hold up before us. The ideal is blurred and defaced by popular thoughts. We get back to the original by the scriptures and not by the disquiescence of the schools. And so Brother Roberts there sums up the overriding characteristics of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ in those 18 silent years at Nazareth, regularly going to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, involving himself every Sabbath day in in accordance with those principles quoted from the prophet Isaiah conducting his business in in, in accordance with the principles of the truth, being an example in all things. And then finally, Brother Roberts, commenting upon the last statement of this chapter, and in favour with God and man. He says, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and man. God's favour never left him, but man's favour did. Not, however, while he was a private resident of Nazareth. He was liked so long as he was a passive, guileless and obliging neighbour. But when he began to point out in public teaching that the ways of the people were wrong, aversion took the place of favour, 
and he became an object of positive hatred. He says this was not until a considerable time after the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Because in that year John came into all the country about Jordan preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. This was the commencement of the opening up of the way for Christ's entrance into public life for which at 30 years of age he was ready and for which John the Baptist was expressly sent that he might prepare his way. So at 30 years of age the Lord Jesus Christ was ready to enter into his public ministry. Why was he ready? Because through the preceding 30 years of his life he had given himself wholly to the things of his father. He'd grown and he developed and he developed grown to maturity in the things of God. And as the 30th year of his life drew near a voice started going forth from the, the Jordan Valley and vibrating forth into, to the, throughout the length and breadth of that land. And that voice, God willing, we will listen to in two weeks' time.